Our scripture reading this morning is found in Genesis chapter 50. It's the very last chapter in the book of Genesis, beginning at verse 19. But Joseph told them, don't be afraid of me. Am I God to judge and punish you? As far as I am concerned, God turned into good what you meant for evil. He brought me to the high position I have today so that I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. Indeed, I myself will take care of you and your families. And he spoke very kindly to them, reassuring them. Today we are continuing our series of sermons on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we are focusing today on the fruit of goodness. Uh, Paul says that uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit will be evident in the life of somebody who is filled with the presence of God, somebody who has oriented their life towards following Jesus. And the fruit of goodness uh, stirs a series of questions for me. I always uh, uh, ask three questions about goodness. The first one is a, a pastoral question. The second is a practical question. And the third is a philosophical question. So pastoral, practical, philosophical. And we'll do them in that order. The first question is pastoral. And there is a um, theological version of this question. The theological version is, is God good? Uh, theology uh, seeks to describe what God is like. Theology tries to say, uh, what is God's character like? Who is God? Where is God? What is the nature of God? And theology can be a little bit speculative. It can be a little bit abstract. It can seem a little distant and maybe even a little bit impersonal. Uh, in the case of uh, this question, uh, volumes have been filled trying to address the question of evil. The, quest the, the question of evil or the problem of evil is sometimes stated this way. Since evil exists, since we know that there's evil in the world, that means that either God is not all-powerful, in other words, he can't fix it, or God isn't good. He doesn't want to fix it. The context of the fruit of the Spirit, though, uh, we don't have an abstract proposition to puzzle out. Instead, we have a very personal promise to receive. And the promise is that if you have the presence, the Spirit of God living within you, that God's goodness is available to you, that you will experience God's goodness. And so the question isn't merely theological. It's also pastoral. The question, is God good? becomes, is God good to me? I might find that I question the goodness of God when I'm suffering. If I know that uh, God could do something that would be very, very easy for God to do, something very, very um, simple for God to do, something very small, and God could alleviate my suffering, and yet I'm still suffering. Well, that doesn't feel like goodness. Uh, that feels like apathy at best, and maybe even like cruelty. I may question God's goodness towards me because I know myself too well. I know my own failures and my own faults. I know the selfishness that is in me. I know my own hidden thoughts. And uh, then knowing that, I project my own behavior onto God. I know that I'm not nice to people who are cruel or people who are mean or people who do wrong. Uh, so why would God be nice to me? We struggle with the question of God's goodness. 
And here's why it's important to engage that struggle. Because the answer to that question of God's goodness towards me will determine what my life is full of. Genesis chapter 3 describes uh, the story of what we sometimes call the fall. It's that uh, pivotal moment in the story of God's creation where God's, the intended design of God's uh, creation goes off the tracks and there's a rupture between God and God's people. And the question that is right at the heart of that rupture is this, is God really good to me? Right, that tree in the middle of the garden looks so good. It looks delicious. It's, it looks so wonderful. And then a serpent comes along and, and sort of cultivates some doubts about the goodness of a God who would withhold something from me that looks so good. Did God really say? Did God really mean? Does God really prohibit you? And when my doubts about God's goodness towards me are fanned into flame, and I begin to take for myself the good that I am convinced I deserve, but which God is withholding, when I do that, my life is filled with devastating loss and multiplied hardship. That's the story of the fall. On the other hand, when I decide to trust in God's goodness towards me, my life is filled with contentment and peace. It's filled with courage and with wisdom. So for example, remember uh, last week we talked a little bit about Psalm 23, but here again, the conviction of David. David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all of the days of my life, all of the days of my life. David's life, frankly, was a little bit of a mess. It was filled with ups and downs, successes and failures, stunning uh, triumphs and ter terrible suffering. And in the midst of all of that, he affirms that God's goodness follows him all of the days of his life, even into the valley of the shadow of death. God's goodness towards him and with him is there too. And trusting in that goodness of God fills his life with peace. It fills his life with such a degree of peace that, that he can metaphorically sit down and casually uh, dine at uh, a table in the presence of his enemies. And it fills his life with hope, a hope for a future that will be spent in the house of God, a future spent in the presence of God himself. And so we live with this dissonance on the one hand, we, we uh, experience suffering and, and we know our own faults and we question the goodness of God towards us. And on the other hand, uh, we want to affirm God's goodness in our lives. So is there a way to resolve that tension? How do I not let the hunger and the need of the present moment erode my ability to trust in God's goodness towards me? And so that leads us to the second question, the practical question. How can I experience God's goodness? And that takes us to the text that we looked at just a few moments ago. The story of Joseph is a story that fills uh, a huge amount of real estate in the book of Genesis. And if you take the time to look over some of the features of that story, you'll see that the life of Joseph, like the life of David, is one of great swings, ups and downs. Uh, Joseph's life is filled with triumphs and failures and uh, heartache. 
Uh, professionally, Joseph's life is uh, spectacular. He's a superstar, right? It's like everything that he touches, no matter where he goes, turns to gold. And God's mercy and goodness is just flowing into his life. And uh, he is truly blessed. However, other aspects of his life seem to be very, very difficult. Um, he's hated by his own brothers who are extremely jealous of him. He's actually sold into slavery by them. He's separated from his country and his culture, his father and his faith. He's falsely accused. He's wrongly imprisoned. A little bit later on in the story, uh, the Middle East has uh, entered into a period of drought and famine. And Joseph has once again risen in the ranks and is at a place of great success and great influence. And he's managing all of Egypt's resources so that not only can uh, Egypt survive the famine, but they have resources to help others as well. And so Joseph's brothers, the very ones who originally sold him into slavery, come and ask him for help to survive this drought. And this moment comes in the story, this great big reveal when uh, Joseph's identity is finally made known to his brothers. And that's when Joseph says, don't be afraid. Am I God? You planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it. You know, I've often preached on this story as an example of forgiveness, the power of forgiveness. But the forgiveness is possible because Joseph trusts in God's goodness. How is it possible then that Joseph can trust in God's goodness after so many terrible things have happened to him? I believe that Joseph's grip on God's goodness is found in a contrast that he's able to see. He says, you intended harm, but God produced good. And when Joseph sees that, he is recognizing something that is very, very, very important about God's goodness. He knows that God's goodness is different from human goodness. Uh, we've all had the experience of trying to do something good and having something bad happen as a result instead. I remember years ago, our church was trying to be helpful to a family that was struggling financially. Uh, and we actually gave a lot of money uh, to this particular family. And we thought that we were doing good things. We were trying to do good, but ended up alienating this family because they felt inferior and embarrassed. Uh, you've heard the saying, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, maybe you've had the thought from time to time in your life, um, I'm sorry that I tried to help. I'm sorry that I ever got involved. Uh, maybe you've actually had to say out loud to somebody, I didn't mean for that to happen. I was only trying to help. Uh, Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They wanted their eyes to be open. Uh, and in the process of reaching for something that they thought was good, they actually became estranged from God. In our hands, goodness can go bad. But what Joseph sees with God is just the opposite. Uh, it's not just that goodness never goes bad with God, but rather that in God's hands, bad things can turn good. God takes bad intentions and darkness and cruel brokenness, and he turns it into something good and beautiful. You intended harm, 
but God has produced good. Uh, from the chaos of the primordial ooze, God produces his good creation. Uh, from the evil harm that Joseph's brothers intend, God produced a provision that would feed God's people during a drought. And then we turn to our, uh, our, the story of the cross, uh, the cross to which the story of Joseph is always intended to turn our attention. The cross is a place of abject horror and shame and death and darkness, and in God's hands, the cross becomes uh, the ultimate instrument of goodness. And so here's the way to hold on to God's goodness. It's to let go of my own. Uh, it's not trying to hold on to God's goodness by working harder and harder and harder to convince myself that it's true. Uh, God is good all the time. God is good all the time. If I repeat it hard enough and long enough, maybe I'll come to believe it. Instead, the opposite. Uh, it, the way to hold on to God's goodness is by acknowledging that I doubt it, by acknowledging that I struggle with it, by saying that I'm not strong enough to hold on to it and I need to be held on to. And finding goodness in my own life isn't about proving to others or trying to prove to myself that I'm good by being nicer and nicer and nicer. It's recognizing that my goodness is never sufficient. Uh, it's acknowledging that my own efforts at being good often produce evil. It's no wonder that C.S. Lewis says that what human beings need is not improvement. Uh, we need redemption. We don't need to become nicer people. We need to become new people. That is the gospel. And so we've asked a pastoral question, is God good to me? Uh, we've asked the, uh, the question of, uh, the practical question, how is it that I can hold on to the goodness of God? And then finally, a philosophical question. The philosophical question is, what is the highest good? Uh, goodness isn't a passive uh, reality. It's not like beauty that we can just observe. Uh, goodness uh, is an active quality. Goodness is uh, deliberately choosing right over wrong. Uh, goodness means choosing to live out the values that I hold dear. Uh, ancient philosophers would often debate about what moral good was most worthy of pursuing, right? Uh, what is the highest good? that I should give myself to? What is the greatest good that I should be expressing in my life? Uh, is maximal pleasure the ultimate good? Uh, if somebody was to observe my life, would they conclude that my highest priority, my greatest good, was to have pleasure, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? Or maybe the highest good in my life is power, uh, to have the most power, to be in control, to be in charge, to have say. Maybe uh, a good postmodern Western version of the highest good is freedom. And by freedom, mostly what we mean uh, is, is, is individual right, uh, but not just my individual rights, but it's actually my autonomy to decide what those rights are at any given moment. Maybe um, the highest good, the greatest good, is safety and security. What is the highest good that this fruit of the Spirit produced in me? would lead me to choose. Uh, the reason that our efforts to do good so often go off the rails 
it's not because we aren't doing something good, but it's because we have replaced, um, we have substituted a secondary good with the, for the ultimate good. Uh, in other words, um, uh, instead of pursuing the highest good, we're pursuing a subsidiary good. I know this uh, will be a little bit of a, uh, a touchy example, but I want to suggest that uh, we saw a version of this happening in the protests in Lansing this past week. Uh, my intention isn't to upset anybody, but it's just simply to say uh, as straightforwardly as I can that the protesters uh, were asserting the highest good uh, in their view uh, was freedom. Their highest good in their view is liberty. Uh, their highest, the highest good in their view uh, is the uh, uh, individual autonomy. And that may be, uh, those are all very, very good things, and they may uh, very well be the highest American good. But I want to say really clearly uh, that those are not the highest Christian good. Uh, those are not the highest biblical good. Uh, for the Christian, for a follower of Jesus, my own rights and my own autonomy and my own freedoms are never, ever, ever ultimate. They're never ultimate. And when I confuse what is the highest good for some other subsidiary good, the results are at best confusing. And so uh, the, the same voices that often cite Romans 13 in the face of President Trump's critics are now themselves hurling personal attacks against the governor. Uh, the same people who hold uh, signs saying right to life, protesting on behalf of the vulnerable unborn, now hold signs that say my body, my choice, and the vulnerable are on their own. Uh, it's confusing at best, and maybe even evil. Maybe a case where uh, good intentions have actually produced evil, spreading fear, spreading disease, spreading hate. And instead, the story of Joseph uh, presents us with a different good, a, a different highest good, if you will. See, knowing God's goodness, Joseph's own goodness towards his brothers is love expressed as giving and forgiving. Do you see that? It's love that is expressed as grace and generosity. Uh, it's a loving compassion. Uh, it's a restoration and attending to relationship, right? He says, because God has produced good, because God has turned evil to good, therefore you don't have to fear me. Uh, because God has produced something good, therefore I will take care of you. I will provide for you. The highest good, the greatest good, is the good of love, expressed as giving and forgiving. It's grace and generosity. The greatest of these is love. Growing in goodness doesn't just mean being nice. And it certainly doesn't mean just trying our best to think the way that, to live the way that we think is right. It means that we have a relationship with God who is good. And in the context of that relationship, we give up our own efforts to be good. Growing in the fruit of goodness means that as I come to Jesus Christ and allow the good spirit of Jesus to live within me, my life will be transformed and I can enter into relationships where I am giving and forgiving, where I am filled with grace 
and generosity, where I can express the highest good, the greatest good, the most excellent good of life.